Good morning, Valley Bible Church. I know this is not normal. You're wondering, why am I on the screen? Why am I not there in person? Well, it's because I tested positive uh, for COVID on Friday night, late Friday night. Um, I haven't shown really any significant symptoms. I've had maybe very, very light symptoms. Uh, I did get a test because I was planning to go to a birthday party Saturday morning, and I just wanted to to kind of be cautious. And so out of kind of a random whim, decided to get uh, tested, and it came back positive. So I don't feel it's appropriate to be there in person with you. I do appreciate your prayers, but I want you to know that I'm feeling great, and I've been fully vaccinated now for months. So I do believe that I'm in a good uh, position uh, to be okay. So this is how we're going to have to do it this Sunday. And I know this is weird and I know this is awkward, but uh, God's Word is still true. God's Word is still applicable to us. God's Word is still going to be used. And I'm really, really excited to jump into our passage today. So let's just do that. Let's just jump right in to the message for this morning as we journey through the Gospel of John. Now, as we do that, I, I want to bring to your mind something that you probably have thought about before or have heard about before, and that is our natural responses to crisis. Our natural responses to crisis. Maybe you've heard it uh, titled as the fight or flight mentality. Uh, either you're going to run away from conflict or you're going to stand and you're going to fight. There's the idea of flight, run away, or fight. And sometimes we don't really know what our response is going to be until we're in a crisis kind of situation. Let me give you an example of this. I was really surprised uh, by my son's response to one of the recent fires we had here in the Bay Area. My, my son Paxton is a very emotionally aware nine-year-old boy. Uh, he empathizes incredibly well with people. It's a pretty remarkable characteristic for a nine-year-old boy. And he also feels the heaviness of the situations that he finds himself in. And, and because of that, as, as his father, sometimes I get worried that his emotional kind of awareness is going to cause him to be overwhelmed in certain situations. Well, that was not the case when one of the fires got close to my in-law's house. We were hanging out there uh, that day, and in about the middle of the day, I would say it was, a, an emergency vehicle just went down their road in front of their house and started blaring its siren and saying over its loudspeaker that people needed to evacuate because the fire had made a turn and was coming toward their property. Well, all the adults started saying, okay, well, what do we need to do? What valuables do we need to get out of the house uh, before the fire gets closed, before we're, we're forced to evacuate, all these things. So we're all kind of in, in panic mode trying to figure everything out. And as I was about to load some paintings into my SUV, my oldest son, Paxton, my emotionally aware son, Paxton, comes up to me and says, Dad, what can I do? Uh, how can I help? Tell me what to do. And so I just started giving him stuff to do, and he just kept coming back and back and back. Dad, what can I do? How can I help? I was incredibly impressed, and I told him, after everything kind of had changed, the fire took a turn, and we were safe, I told him, I said, man, I'm really impressed at your response. See, he had that fight mentality. He had that mentality of he was focused. He was composed. He was, he was ready to go. He was in fight mode. Now, I remember responding 
very differently than my son did in a crisis situation. We were, we were uh, with my family and we were at a local park. This is several years ago. And we were playing and at this park, I noticed a situation that I felt like was getting a little um, unsafe. And see, I grew up in a not-so-safe neighborhood, and so I felt like I have this kind of antenna as to if a situation is getting to a place that may not be good. I could kind of see a fight coming before it actually happens. And so we're at this park, and I noticed just certain things start to happen. I thought, you know what? It's time to get out of here. So I remember looking at my wife and saying, I think it's time for us to go because I'm not comfortable with where this situation is right now. What happened is as we were going to the van and we were loading up the kids, things did escalate and I heard in the background a taser go off. And I looked over and a woman was trying to tase another woman right in front of the lunch table that we were at with our kids. I did the other response that my son did. I, I, it wasn't fight for me. At that moment, it was flight. It was time to get out of there. Fight or flight. But what if I told you there's actually a third response, a third response, not fight or flight, not flight as in run away, get it, get out of there, uh, fight or stand, right, and, 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 and defend yourself. But there was another response, a third response, and that response is to suffer, to suffer. Now, what do I mean by that? See, to suffer is, is different. Suffer is when we intentionally embrace the idea that harm is inevitable, that harm is unavoidable, that suffering is going to happen, that pain is going to happen. When we decide to suffer, it's different than deciding to stand and fight. When you decide to stand and fight, there's, there's optimism that you're going to win, optimism that there's not going to be lost, optimism that you're not going to experience harm or discomfort. You're more optimistic about the outcome. When you decide to suffer, You've come to grips with the inevitable outcome that you will suffer. Now, this is not, I think, one of our natural responses. I think our natural response is fight or flight. But to suffer, I don't think, is a natural response. But I think it's incredibly important that we know the difference between fight and suffer. And in fact, that's what the lesson that Jesus is going to teach one of his closest followers in our chapter in the Gospel of John. That follower is Peter. Peter is going to learn the lesson that even though he's ready to fight for Jesus, he's not ready to suffer for Jesus. And I think this is incredibly important for us to understand as 21st century American Christians. We need to learn that there is a difference between fight and suffer. So let me show you this in John chapter 13. Let's jump into where we left off from Last week. So let me give you the big idea right up front of what I think Jesus is trying to teach to Peter and I think trying to teach to us when it comes to the response of crisis, the response when harm is on its way to us. And I think what Jesus is going to tell us is, is this that fighting is easy, suffering is harder. That's the big idea. Fighting is easy, suffering, suffering is harder. Again, suffering is that idea that we're not optimistic about the outcome. We know that we're going to lose, but we, we decide to stand and endure that anyways for a higher purpose. So let me show you how Peter was ready to fight, but he was not yet ready to suffer. 
And I think we could ask ourselves that same question is, as a 21st century American Christians, are we willing to, yes, fight, but are we also willing to suffer? Are we okay when the outcome looks bleak and are willing to stand even when we know we're going to experience discomfort? So let's go to John chapter 13, starting with verse 36. Verse 36 says this. This is Simon Peter speaking to Jesus. In verse 36 it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So right there in the very beginning, Peter asks a question. Where are you going, Jesus? Now, Jesus has been talking about his coming death. He's been talking about his uh, arrest, his crucifixion, his death, his his burial, his resurrection, and ascension back to the Father. He's been talking about all of these things are about to happen. We, we saw this last week when Jesus talked about how the Father was going to be glorified in him. He was going to glorify the Father, and the Father would glorify him. We saw that in verse 31 and verse 32 of this chapter. Jesus, in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, has been speaking about what is going to happen to himself. In John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. In verse 33, it says, And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus has been talking about his death. He's been talking about his crucifixion. He's been talking about the plan of God unfolding in his life, in his death and his resurrection and his ascension back to the Father. So when Jesus is talking about going away, this is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 13. He's talking about kind of embracing the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. And so this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, I'm going away and you cannot follow. Now, Peter probably picks up on some of this. I don't think he fully understands what Jesus is talking about when it comes to his uh, crucifixion and his resurrection. But Peter knows that this going away that Jesus is talking about and this idea that he uses about following Jesus, it's not about vacation. It's not about a going away to some destination, right? That's not what uh, Peter understands. Peter understands that Jesus is talking about some idea of danger. Uh, And we get this because of what Peter says in verse 37. He says, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. So, Peter clearly understands that when Jesus says, I'm going away, and Peter says, I want to follow, Peter realizes that that Jesus is not just talking about Jesus' next GPS location. Uh, He's talking about more than that. Because Peter is saying, I'm willing to go with you. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. I, I get that following you means danger. That following you means my potential death. And maybe Peter is unpacking this idea because of what Jesus taught just a chapter before. In John chapter 12, in verse 25, or sorry, verse 26, it says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, 
the Father will honor him. In verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So Jesus said, hey, you have to follow me. If you want to serve me, you have to follow me. In the verse before, it speaks about those who want to follow have to hate their life. So maybe Peter's saying, okay, I want to follow you, Jesus. You said that I'm supposed to follow you. You also said that I'm supposed to hate my life. So I'm willing to let go of my life if it means following you. So I think Peter kind of understands a little bit some of the danger that's involved in following Jesus. He, he, he kind of gets that here. Now, again, I don't think he fully understands what Jesus means when he talks about going away to the Father, his crucifixion, his suffering, his resurrection, and his ascension. But Peter gets some of it. And Peter says to Jesus, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. That's what I'm willing to do. Now, I think here Peter is is right, but also wrong. There's a sense in which Peter, Peter's resolve for Jesus, Peter's commitment to Jesus being spoken here is true. It's right. Peter is willing to fight. He is willing to suffer. He is willing to lay down his life. Uh, Peter is true in what he's communicating to Jesus. And we actually see that later in John chapter 18. In John chapter 18, because Peter actually takes up the sword and fights for Jesus. In John chapter 18, when Jesus is arrested, after Jesus has betrayed him to the religious leaders, and Jesus is being handed over now to the authorities, which will lead to his crucifixion, before that arrest happens, Peter decides to defend Jesus. So his commitment when he tells Jesus, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready to lay down my life for you. Jesus, or sorry, Peter is definitely ready to fight for Jesus. We see this in John chapter 18, verse 11. It says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Now Jesus' response to this in verse 11 is, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? So Jesus does not want Peter to fight right now, but Peter is willing to fight. Now just think for a moment here the odds that are really set against Peter. There's not many disciples right now that are hanging out with Jesus in this garden. And yet a lot of soldiers have come to arrest Jesus. There's kind of this mixed group of, of Roman authorities and religious authorities and or, or religious officers, and they're coming to arrest Jesus. It's hard to tell exactly what number has come, but it, it could be hundreds of people have come to arrest Jesus. So Peter is definitely fighting against the odds. Peter is ready to be a hero. He is ready to fight. And that's clearly shown in John chapter 18, that Peter is ready to fight, and he's ready to be a hero. But what Jesus tells Peter is, you might be willing to be a hero, but you're not ready to be a martyr. You're ready to fight, but Peter, you're not ready to suffer. Peter, it's, it's easy for you to have the sword in your hand, but it's really hard when the sword is at your neck. Then things become totally different. And that's what Peter is trying, or that's what Jesus is trying to tell Peter. Peter, I see your resolve, right? Yes, you're willing to lay down your life for me. Yes, you're willing to fight. And we see that in John chapter 18. So it's true in John 13 when Peter says, I'm willing to lay down my life. Yes, Peter is in fight mode. But Jesus tells him, Peter, what's harder than fighting 
is suffering, and you don't have the strength to suffer. Now go back to John 13. Let me show you this. Let's read it again, starting with verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter, you can't follow me. You can't follow me. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I will enter danger. I'm ready to fight. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Notice how it's a question there. Will you lay down your life for me? There are times that we get questions that are given to us, addressed to us, and they're not really questions, right? They're, they're statements. Like if you ever said this as a parent, or maybe you've heard this from your parents, or maybe you've heard this from your boss, or maybe you've said this as a boss. But, but statements that are like, are you out of your mind? Or uh, what were you thinking? Those aren't real questions, right? They're actually not looking for an answer. And you're not looking for an answer if you've ever used that question. And the person who's addressed that to you is not really looking for an answer. They're making a statement. You're making a statement. When somebody says, what were you thinking? Right? The statement is, really, you weren't thinking. When somebody makes the, uh, the, the question uh, or addresses you with the question of, what are you, out of your mind? They're actually making a statement. You are out of your mind. This is what Jesus is doing here to Peter. Will you lay down your life for me? He's saying, you won't lay down your life for me. Right now, when, when we say that as, as parents or as a boss, or we hear that from our parents, or we've heard that from our parents, or uh, we've heard those kind of questions from our boss, whatever it is, right? we have to kind of guess at the intentions in somebody's heart. Right? Or... or, or or somebody is guessing at the intentions of our heart, right? We, we can feel that sense of skepticism and, and um, uh, just kind of not, not certain to be, to be skeptical of what's going on, to be suspicious of what's going on in somebody, right? That's what those questions are grounded in, suspicion and skepticism. What were you thinking? Clearly, you weren't thinking. Now, Jesus doesn't have to guess, right? Jesus' suspicion and skepticism is completely true, he, he's discerning exactly what's going to happen. Jesus knows what's going in the heart, or uh, going on in the heart of Peter, and he knows what will happen in the future. That's why Jesus predicts in the very next statement in verse 38, Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. No, Peter, you won't lay down your life for me. In fact, you're going to deny me. When you're in a situation where, where loss is inevitable, where suffering is unavoidable, where you have no chance of winning, when you found, find yourself kind of backed in the corner and you don't have that weapon with you, when you're on enemy ground, if you will, Peter, you're going to deny me. And I think this really just hit Peter hard. It's interesting how the most outspoken disciple in the Gospels, it's always Peter. Peter is always talking. He's always the one who's speaking on behalf of the disciples. He's always the ones that seems to be answering Jesus' questions or asking Jesus' questions. He's the most vocal of all the disciples. Yet, he doesn't talk after this moment until we get to John chapter 18. 
So the rest of John 13 and John 14, John 15, John 16, John 17, we see other disciples speak very uh, openly, but Peter is silent. I think it's because these words really hurt Peter. The guy who's ready to fight, the guy who's ready to be a hero, is just now confronted by Jesus to say, yeah, you're willing to fight, but you're not willing to suffer. You're willing to be a hero, but you're not ready to be a martyr. You cannot follow me, Peter, in the way of suffering. You think you have that resolve. You think you have that strength. You will show some strength when I'm arrested, but you are going to deny me. In fact, you're going to deny me before tomorrow starts. That's what Jesus means when he comes to the, the rooster crowing three times. He's basically saying, now Judas has left, it's already nighttime. He's saying, before tomorrow morning, before we get into the next day, you're going to deny me. And this is exactly what happens later on in the Gospel of John. Let me show you this. So we go to the arrest of Jesus, and then we also see Peter deny Jesus in John chapter 18. We see this in verse 17 of John 18. It says, The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. I'm not a disciple. Peter finds himself in the courtroom or the courtyard of the high priest. He's watching the kind of trial unfold of Jesus. He's he's basically in enemy territory and he sees things unfolding for Jesus right now that are not really good. Jesus has been taken and now he's before this court and these accusations are flying. Things are not going well. It's clear that Jesus is going to lose and it's clear that Peter if he aligns himself with Jesus, is going to lose. Loss is inevitable. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is inevitable now. It's, they, he doesn't have a fighting chance right now. So he denies one time. He denies a second and a third time, if you jump to cha- uh, uh, verse 25 of John 18. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it. I'm not. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, did I not see you in the garden with him? I saw you. You were a fighter. And Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Peter, you were ready to fight, but you were not ready to suffer. You had the resolve to be a hero, but not the resolve to be a martyr. Now, as sad as that is, And as devastating, I'm sure, as that was to hear for Peter, especially on the lips of Jesus, to be told that he was not strong enough to suffer, there is still hope in John 13. Go back to John chapter 13. Even though Jesus would predict that Peter would deny, he also predicted something else. Let me show you this. Let's go back to what Jesus said. We'll start with, again, verse 36. Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. You're not ready to suffer now. You're not really ready, or you're not ready to suffer death now. But you will be afterward. You will follow me 
afterward. Right now you can't do it. In fact, when the pressure comes, you'll be ready to fight, but you won't be ready to suffer. But afterward, Peter, you will be ready to suffer. You will have the strength and the resolve to be a martyr. And we see this when Jesus predicts another event. So Jesus predicted that Peter would deny in John chapter 13. But after the resurrection, or Jesus' resurrection, he makes another prediction on the life of Peter. And it's a fulfillment of what Jesus said in John chapter 13. He said, you will follow me afterward. You will suffer afterward. You will suffer death. You will be a martyr. You will follow me in this way. And Jesus makes this clear in John chapter 21. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the encounter that Jesus has with Peter. This is John chapter 21, verse 15. It says, And when he had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, this is a really weird kind of question. And it's really uh, difficult to understand what this means in the Greek. What is Jesus saying here? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What is he talking about there? Is, is he asking Simon, Simon, do you love me more than you love your fellow disciples? Or uh, do you love me more than this fishing equipment, which is what they're doing right now? Uh, or, Jesus could be saying, do you love me more than these men love me? I actually think that third option is the best option. Now, I know that sounds like a really weird question, that Jesus is looking at Peter and saying, Peter, do you have more love for me than these guys have for me? But I actually don't think it's a weird question when we consider who Peter is. Peter has always been a leader for the disciples, and he will be a leader later in the first century church. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus talks about Peter betraying, he says, Peter, you're going to be restored. And when you're restored, I want you to encourage your brothers. So Peter has always been a leader. And this is what I think Jesus is saying here. When he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? He's saying, Peter, can you, can you lead in love? Can you be the one who steps first in love? Can you be the example, the pillar, the rock of love and devotion for me that these other guys are going to look at and say, wow, look how Peter loves. We should respond the same way. I think that's what Jesus is doing. I think Jesus is saying, Peter, do you, are you a, a leader in love, devotion, and affection for me? So much so that these men can follow you in that. That's what I think he's asking here. And then Jesus asks Three times if Peter loves. Look what Jesus says. And he said to him, or sorry, Peter responds, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him, a third time, do you love me? Why is he grieved? Well, he's asked three times really the same question. Do you love me? Do you love me? And surely, surely, he's reminded that he denied Jesus three times. Again, he was ready to fight, but he wasn't ready to suffer. When the odds were against him, when there was no way of winning, when, when he could tell there was no way to gain the upper hand, 
when clearly Jesus was losing at the religious court that he was a part of before his crucifixion, when he was convicted of blasphemy, when Peter is in the courtyard and he is seeing all of this unfold, he was not ready to suffer. He knew there was no way to win. The odds were totally against him. He wasn't ready to suffer. And so in the pressure of that moment, he decided to break. And he denied Jesus. He was not ready to suffer. And he denied three times. Now, Jesus asked him the question three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And that's when Peter is grieved. And notice Peter's response. Totally different than what's going on in John 13. In John 13, Peter is so confident in his discipleship, right? He's so confident in his devotion. I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. So confident in his resolve. Peter does not have the same confidence. Look at the humility in which he responds to Jesus. He says to him, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. See, he doesn't rely on his confidence or on his strength. He just says to Jesus, Jesus, you know the answer to this. You know that I love you. What humility there with Peter. And then Jesus makes this prediction. Peter, you were ready to fight, but you are not yet ready to suffer. But you will suffer, and you will be ready to suffer. You were willing to be the hero, right? It's easy to fight, but it's hard to suffer. It's easy to be the hero in comparison to being a martyr. And Jesus is going to make a prediction right here saying, Peter, yes, you were willing to fight. You weren't willing to suffer, but you will be ready to suffer later. Jesus says this after Peter affirms to him, I love you, Jesus. Verse 18 of John 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. Now it's Somewhat odd to us, this language that's used here, this idea of when you were young, you basically went where you wanted to go, is what he says. And then when you're old, your hands will be stretched out. Somebody will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. Now, that sounds like a very odd statement, but then it's very clear to us afterward that John makes it clear. He's saying, he's talking about how Peter is going to die. Now, how does someone else dressing you and taking you where you don't want to go and your arms being stretched out... How does that describe dress? It sounds like he's trying on a wardrobe, right? It, it, death by dress? Is that what he's talking about? That phrase, your arms will be stretched out, or your hands will be stretched out, that was used in the first century world several times to describe crucifixion. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Peter, you're going to be crucified. Your arms are going to be stretched out. And somebody will dress you, right? We see them uh, taking off the clothes of Jesus, you know, in his crucifixion, them putting on a crown of thorns. They've dressed him, so very similar, maybe not a crown of thorns, but they're removing his clothing and they're putting a beam and it says they're taking him where he doesn't want to go. That idea is the idea that when the, the, uh, when crucifixion would happen, they wouldn't just put somebody on a cross, uh, they would actually make them carry their cross beam on. So the beam that would go this way, they would put it on their back and they would carry that 
all the way to the place of crucifixion, and then they would be crucified. That's what's being described here. Your arms are going to be stretched out, Peter, and you're going to carry the crossbeam of your cross all the way to the place where you're going to die. And in this death, what does John tell us in 19? This will glorify God. You will die a martyr. Here's a remarkable thing about this. Is this wouldn't happen for three decades. Three decades. After this prediction. Now imagine being Peter and and living with this prediction from Jesus, the one who has just shown himself to be God by his resurrection. And he is telling you, you're going to die by crucifixion. This is how you will glorify God. For three, or sorry, for 30 years, over 30 years, three decades, you live with this prediction over your head. Man, that's got to be significantly hard. In fact, by the time this gospel, the gospel of John, is is written, this prophecy, this prediction from Jesus will actually have already been fulfilled. Peter, at this time of the writing of the gospel of John, has already died by crucifixion. Now, maybe this gave Peter confidence. I mean, he has just been devastated by the idea that he's denied Jesus. We've seen this when he was grieved when Jesus asked the third time if he loved him. But then what we see from Peter in the book of Acts is is a very bold and confident individual. When Jesus tells him, Peter, you're going to die for me. Peter, you're going to be a martyr. Peter, you're going to suffer, and you're going to have the strength to do it. You will glorify God in your death. Maybe it didn't cause paranoia. Maybe that's what caused his confidence. He was willing to suffer. Hey, the next time I'm in the ring, I'm not going to lose. Yes, I'm going to suffer loss, but I'm not going to deny my Lord and Savior this time. Fighting is easy. Suffering is harder. And we see this kind of resolve work itself out for Peter. In fact, one of the first times we see Peter in the book of Acts, as he becomes the bold preacher, especially in the beginning of the book of Acts, he faces opposition, he faces persecution. And and what happens is the religious leaders who have just pressured the Romans to crucify Jesus, those who have just, who were there in that courtyard as they were uh, uh, bringing false witnesses against Jesus, they, they used to leverage a guilty verdict for Jesus, right? These guys who were just instrumental in the crucifixion of his Savior are now opposing Peter and telling Peter, hey, you can't talk about this Jesus anymore. You've got to stop doing these things. And what's very interesting is in First Peter, or sorry, in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people, and the elders. He addresses them, he pushes back on them, and he says, we are not going to stop talking about Jesus. He tells them in verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that you rejected, the the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. That's what he says. And he tells these people. And how did he tell them that? Because it was naturally in Peter? No, verse 8 is very important in Acts chapter 4. It says what? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't think suffering is our natural response when harm is on its way. I think, yes, we have that natural fight or fight, or sorry, fight or flight mentality. Either run away or stand and fight. But when we realize 
that loss is inevitable, that there's no way to win, when the sword is not in our hand but it's at our neck, it is not natural for us to embrace loss, to embrace suffering, to embrace harm when we have no chance of winning. We may face crazy odds, but when we realize the game is over, right? The final buzzer has buzzed. The game clock has no, no more time on it. Then are we willing to endure the cost for a higher calling? Then are we willing to experience harm for a higher purpose? And Peter was willing to do that. How? It didn't come naturally. It was by the Spirit of God who now made the one who had the resolve to fight, but not the resolve to suffer, now made him confident and able to be a martyr. What a valuable lesson for Peter to learn. It's easy to fight. That suffering is harder. Fighting is easy. Suffering is harder. I think this is an incredibly valuable lesson for us to learn as 21st century Christians. Because suffering is inevitable for us. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Here's a prediction on your life, a prediction on my life. We will suffer. We will be persecuted. Now, we don't get an exact prediction like Jesus gave Peter in John chapter 13. We don't get an exact prediction like Jesus gave Peter in John chapter 21. But we are given a general prediction on our lives as we try to live a godly life. We will be persecuted. So the question is, are we strong enough to suffer? Do we have the resolve to suffer? And there's a difference between fighting and suffering. Now, Jesus calls us to fight. And what I mean by fight is he, he calls us to stand on our convictions. He calls us to, um, to, uh, to promote good Christian values. He, he, he tells us to fight for things. Absolutely, we should do those things. But we should also understand that Jesus calls us to suffer that we're told that we will be persecuted, that there are times we have to get in the ring knowing we're going to lose. We have to get in the ring knowing there is no chance that we get out of that ring as the victor, that we will lose, that we have to embrace loss, pain, suffering, and discomfort for a higher calling, for a higher purpose. I think this is incredibly important as I feel like the cultural landscape for us is shifting in America as Christians. It's shifting for Christians. I was made so aware of this, and I've seen this kind of just happen in kind of small increments, but I remember in just a strange way this coming to my attention. I was watching March Madness because I'm such a big fan of college sports, and March Madness to me is like the greatest sporting event ever. I go crazy for March Madness, which is the college basketball tournament. And I remember there were some Christian colleges that got really far in March Madness. And as I was kind of reading all the stuff about the teams, because I get so into it, and so I, I read articles about the teams, and I learn about the players, and I love that stuff, I came across an article where it had a large group of people who were calling on the NCAA, those who kind of oversee the March Madness, 
oversee college basketball and college sports, calling on the NCAA to disqualify these Christian universities. Not because they cheated, not because they had ineligible players, but simply for the fact that these Christian universities stood on Christian values. Christian values that define the very uh, biblical way to view marriage and to view gender. And because these Christian universities were acting out of Christian values, being faithful to their convictions on Scripture, because they were doing these things, that they should be disqualified from these sports, disqualified from the tournament because of their values, because they didn't line up with where the culture was going when it came to family and it came to the definition of gender. Now, I thought that was really odd. I, I, always, I, I knew that there was definitely a difference when it comes to culture's definition of these things and, of course, Christian definition of these things. But to see right there that there would be kind of an invasion of this kind of thinking into college sports of all things. But we see kind of things are shifting in many different areas. That's just one example. But you could see it over and over and over and over and over again. Just as school boards are now um, showing us what they're going to be teaching our children if your kids are in public school. And what's happening is we're seeing values that aren't friendly to scriptural values. I was just recently in the state of Washington and the state of Idaho. I was doing a camp for a church in Washington, and the camp was in Idaho. And so I was talking to friends in Washington and in Idaho. And as we were talking about these things, I was telling them, yes, I'm a pastor in the Bay Area. I'm a pastor in California. Telling them about how I love California, all these different things. And we started talking, and it was, it was funny how it always kind of came up about how unpopular Christian values are in California. And, and I understood kind of what these people were saying, and I agreed with what they were saying. And, and we were kind of joking back and forth, and they were telling me, man, you need to move to Washington. You need to, you know, uh, wh- what about Idaho and all these different things? And I know people have moved out of California. In fact, a ton of people are moving out of California, right? It's hard to find a U-Haul in the state of California because everybody is leaving, and all these dynamics are happening. And you know, I've got friends in different states and different cities and different things, and they'll tell me, hey, there's better taxes out here. You can buy a bigger house out here. Uh, the, the schooling is better out here. The neighborhoods are safer out here. And, and, and I get what they're saying, and I would probably agree with what they're saying. But part of that makes me wonder if we've adopted this kind of idea that if Christian values aren't popular— if there's no way that Christian values will ever be popular where we are, then it's just time to go. Like, is that the right conclusion to draw? Well, there's no way Christian values are going to win. There's no way Christian values are going to take root and take hold again. Things are not going to be easier. And the way things are moving now, culture is not just going to be moving away from us, but now moving against us. That is, we don't align ourselves. They're not just going to want to kick us out of the NCAA tournament, but rather they're going to move in different ways that cause persecution, something we should not be surprised of because of what Paul tells Timothy. These days of conflict are coming. These moments of tension are here. The friction is here already. The question really becomes, as Christians... Are we willing to fight? I would say the answer is yes to that. 
But I think there's another question. Are we willing to suffer? And I think that's the harder question to answer. Yes, I think we're willing to fight and to stand for Christian values, to promote Christian values as the key to human flourishing. I think I've seen that. That's been very clear to me. But what I'm a little uncertain of is if we are willing to suffer. When our Christian values aren't popular, and when holding to those Christian values mean we're going to lose in some way, we're going to experience discomfort, we're going to experience harm, and there's no way to get out of the ring without a bruise, without some scars. Are we willing to suffer? Are we, do, we just, do we just kind of get up and go and get up and leave and run away? Now, I hope you don't hear that I'm saying if you're thinking about moving from California or you have moved from California or something like that, that I think you made the, the wrong decision. I, I'm not saying that. I, I'm not meaning that at all. But what, I, what I'm trying to say is, do we realize that as Christians, we are called to suffer and not just fight? We don't want to be like Peter and overestimate our resolve. Right? We can learn something from John chapter 13. That we should not overestimate our resolve. We need to be humble and say, man, I'm willing to fight, but Jesus, suffering is a different thing. Right? And the arrogance that Peter had there to just say, oh yeah, I'll lay down my life. So quick to say that. I don't think he understood the cost of that. And I think we also need to understand that there is a difference between fighting and suffering. And if you feel, man, Paul, I don't know the answer to that question. Am I, am I willing to suffer when loss is inevitable? When discomfort is inevitable? When there's no way to get away from the cost of standing for Christian values, standing for the scriptures, living a godly life, when there's no way but to experience loss, am I willing to take that? Or am I just going to run away from it? Am I just going to flee? I think if, if you come to an honest assessment for yourself and realize that you're not confident that you're willing to suffer, I think you actually find yourself in a good place. I think you find yourself in good company. Why? Because that's where Peter was. I think our natural responses are fight and flight. But I think suffering is a supernatural response. We saw that in Acts chapter 4. Peter was filled with the Spirit. That's why he was able to suffer. So my prayer is that as a church, as Valley Bible Church in Hercules, California, that we would be filled with Christians, not just ready to fight, but ready to suffer. And ready to suffer because we are dependent upon the Spirit the Spirit who can give us supernatural strength to suffer. To say, hey, no matter what it costs me, no matter what it costs me, no matter the harm or the discomfort, I'm not going to run away. I'm not just going to get out of town because it's easier over here for now. I'm not just going to get out of town because it's easier for the moment to just leave and go to a place where Christian values are a little more popular and well-received. No, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay where I am because there's people in my city, there's people in my family, there's people in my community who don't yet know Jesus, and I'm willing to suffer for them. Think about our Savior, Jesus Christ. When He left heaven and came to earth, did He leave heaven 
and come to earth because the taxes were better, because the neighborhood was better, the schools were better, it was a safer neighborhood. Now, why did Jesus come to earth? He came to earth to suffer, to suffer and to die, to redeem us. And I think we need to follow the footsteps of our Savior in that. There's a higher calling in our life than to have a bigger house, to have easier tax breaks, to have more uh, Christian-friendly values being promoted in our area. No, we, we need Christians who are willing to say, I don't care where the current of culture is going. I don't care how much friction is going against me. I don't care how much I have to swim upstream or swim against the current. I don't care about those things because there are people in my city, in my community, that are worth suffering for because I believe that Christ came for them and I'm here alongside of Jesus Christ serving to see them saved. I'm willing to suffer for a higher purpose, a higher calling. So my prayer is that we would have the strength to fight, but also the strength to suffer. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for this, this, this median that we have right here, that we are able to still um, share in your word, open it up and learn. Father, I know this isn't the easiest way to do things, and I know this is a different experience for us, but you are faithful to us, and we are so thankful for the technology that you have given us. Father, I pray that you would find Valley Bible Church, a place where Christians are willing to fight, fight for for Christian values, because this is the key to human flourishing. This is good for the world, these values. But Father, I, I pray that we'd also show how much we believe in these values, because we're willing to suffer for them. Father, we pray that we would follow the lead of your Son, your Son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to suffer and die for the sake of our sin, that He's willing to take on flesh to move into our neighborhood, which wasn't very safe. A neighborhood that would be full of people who would cry out for His crucifixion. But He loved those who oppressed Him. He loved those who persecuted him. He died for those who would wound him. Father, we we be a similar people, willing to suffer. People who, who don't just aspire to be a hero, but a people who are willing to be a martyr if called upon. Oh, Father, how you are honored by such a church and how we pray that we will be such a church. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. You are dismissed from the service, and we'll see you next Sunday.